right, so fantastic to see all of your faces here today. Welcome. Welcome to the beautiful Melbourne Athenaeum. And on behalf of Black Ink, and indeed on behalf of Readings, it's such a pleasure to have you all here. My name is Chris Gordon. I'm the Programming Manager for Readings, which, as so many of you know, is the very best bookshop in the world. Before I begin tonight introducing our speakers and telling you some of the ground rules of the Eve, I want to acknowledge that tonight we meet on the Kulin Nation, and that is owned by the Wurundjeri people. I wish to pay my respects to their elders, past, present and future. This land that we call our home is Aboriginal land, always has been, always will be. Tonight, my friends, there are a couple of rules. The very first one, and I'll give you some time to do this, is to pop your phones on silent, please. Of course, you're very welcome to take pictures throughout the night. You're welcome to tweet. You're welcome to go onto your book of faces, whatever works for you. We just don't want to hear. Uh, there will also be no book signing after this event, and there'll be no questions at the end of the event. Why? Because, my friends, we've all paid with good money and good time to hear from the speakers from the stage. <laughs> and I do hope that you understand. It's so brilliant to be in this theatre tonight with you all, you wonderful people, or you wonderful feminists. I know that many of you tonight here in this hall have had to negotiate to get here. Perhaps you've organised your partner to pick up your children. Perhaps you've had to skip out of work early. And perhaps you've had to travel far. I appreciate the effort it takes to be here at 6pm on a Monday night. And I know that our speakers also appreciate that. So thank you so much. Uh, just before we get started, I wonder if I can just get the house lights up just for a minute, if that's okay. Because I do want to do one thing. I want to take a photo of all of you holding that quarterly essay up high. It just always looks so good, so, so good. You have no idea. Jackie, who's our social media queen, is coming out to, oh, I love it. Higher, higher, friends, higher. Oh, so good, so good. It looks unbelievable. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, I am delighted tonight to introduce you to Virginia Trioli, journalist, author, radio, television presenter, and as we know her, the voice of Melbourne. Can you please make her so, so welcome? Good evening, hello. <laughs> How nice to see you all. Good evening. Hello. How are you? Excellent. You sound fabulous. I am Virginia Trioli, latterly of News Breakfast, but soon to be presenter of Mornings on ABC Radio in Melbourne. <laughs> and you are all my new best friends and going to be tuning in October 14, Monday morning. Yes? Yes. yes. 
Um, why am I standing here? I don't need to introduce the, the extra special woman you've come to see and hear from tonight because you know her and you love her and you respect her. She's the author of several books. She's the author of The Wife Drought, which uh, feeds directly in tonight's quarterly essay, um, author of another quarterly essay, an award-winning one as well. She's uh, the, uh, a former columnist, writer, uh, reporter, of course, the creator of Kitchen Cabinet, and she's one half of an obscure dance troupe <laughs> known as um, Looks 3 Chat 10. Her name is Annabelle Crabb. Please make her welcome. Weird curtsy then. Why did I do that? <laughs> Why did I even do that? God. Because you're a nice girl. Oh, you're a nice girl. And a good girl. We almost didn't make it out here this evening. I know. Hello, Annabelle. Because we were <laughs> backstage going. <laughs> we were. And, um, and in a sense, we were backstage basically sort of um, building the. Uh, um, political and social infrastructure that actually is, frankly, this essay, which is what the hell is going on off the rails at home, uh, the three bushfires that I'm trying to put out via text um, in our lives, and, uh, and all the six things that have been forgotten because we both have to get on planes tomorrow. So, yeah. You wrote the book, lady. You I wrote did. The book. Uh, just mainly I wrote it on the dunny. But yes. yeah. <laughs> you know that thing where you Weeping. just like grab all of the tiny little scraps of time and you sort of weepingly just sew yes. it together into yeah. something. Yeah. That's, I think it's why they invented the mobile phone. I mean, I, I've written epics on my phone. Right. It is a, you, you really can. You can just go. You, I, I have sent um, articles and columns in, in uh, texts, just a series <laughs> of links. Have you done it from the shower? <laughs> no, I've not done it from the shower. I've okay. done it from the shower. Yeah, well. <laughs> you see, I can't best her in anything. I mean, why would I even try? Um, Congratulations, Annabelle. Fantastic essay, but um, beautifully written, of course, wonderfully thought through. Um, and maybe not so much congratulations about the fact that it's incredibly timely and depressingly relevant. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I, when I wrote The Wife Drought, the, the thing that really just haunted me like a bit of a ghost afterwards, I wrote a bit of, like I wrote a chapter about men and work and, you know, why women have changed so much in the last sort of half century and men haven't really changed the way they manage their work and life at all. And I was a bit haunted by it because I couldn't really quite answer it, you know, because on one hand you have people saying like, mate, why don't men do, you know, parental leave and flexible work? Because who wants to be part of that nonsense? Like, who wants to get home at that time and, you know, deal with the Vesuvius of need that is um, <laughs> a household with young children mm. greeting the end of the day. And, um, but then I also was sort of felt um, this sort of sense that there was this structural barrier um, that prevented men from changing the way that they work to reflect what else is going on in the rest of their lives. And how that divvies up, I don't know. And I still don't, but I also feel like in the last five years, the situation has sort of developed a little bit mm. for two reasons. One, because I think demands on fathers are increasing and we're no longer sort of 
broadly prepared to accept that fathers are like optional extras in in a household, like, mm. you know, I'd say in the essay, like metallic duco or, you know, <laughs> Spo a spoiler, spoilers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but also because there's been quite an interesting thing that's happened, I think, and it's starting with big professional services firms, where in the last five years they've started really thinking about men and how they operate and why is it that men's take up of things like flexible work and parental leave are so low and they've started to respond to what is I think a burgeoning need among younger fathers particularly yeah. millennial fathers yes. to live life differently um, and that's just hugely I find that a really optimistic development mm -hmm. you know that that big companies are starting to think about this stuff and I remember when I think in about 2014 Telstra initiated this policy called all roles flex which is where you know they changed the balance of um the, the presumption in jobs at Telstra where you didn't have to go and beg to have it made flexible it was flexible until proven otherwise mm -hmm. and I think that that there are a bunch of firms that have started doing that and that has been a big sea change um, in the last five years and what that feeds into is a greater acceptance of people working differently which also opens the door for men to work differently and so I'm an optimist about this stuff so I feel like I wrote this essay because I thought I feel like it's a moment where people are starting to think about it and there's a little toehold for the discussion yeah. and that that is partially created by these firms that are starting to approach things a bit differently and what's driving that is competition for talent you know mm. um so I felt like it was a bit of a moment um, there's a number of points that you've just beautifully laid out there that were all of which we're going to get to in our conversation. I know, I jumped the gun a bit, didn't I? No, no I just, it's all good, yeah. it's all good, Doreen. Um, because I, it's nice having them out there, the generational difference, which I think we'll head towards and discuss. Yeah. Uh, changes that some workplaces are seeing the need for. Um, the fact it's actually being driven by, as it most you know often is, economic necessity, uh, the fight to keep the best talent, yeah. but also you get the best out of your people. Productivity simply works better when you have a, a whole person, someone yep. who brings their whole self to work. So a few points that we're going to land and get to in our in our essay, but our, in our conversation. But I wanted to start with um, where you actually start your essay. Uh, a few important phone calls that you made to some high-profile male politicians yes. <laughs> about juggling home and work. Why did you make those calls? Well, as you'll recall, about a year ago, um, we had, you know, one of our increasingly customary experiences in prime ministerial recycling. Um, <laughs> and um, and we... It's a pity we don't end up with a sort of a, the same kind of crisis that we did in Victoria with recycling, where, you know, <laughs> just, we just don't know where Imagine that the Prime Minister is just like, there's not enough landfill space exactly. to Well, there, there isn't. There bathrooms. actually isn't. Yeah. So. <laughs> We tried uh, exporting that, them. That's to a wake-up. So, yeah. so you you actually get onto the issue of genuine recycling when you hit that kind of wake-up call. That's what we need. But I and digress. some of them can be burned for fuel. I mean, <laughs> so, um, but well, they're always so, full of smoke. So, yeah. Yeah. It was a funny old week, wasn't it? Like it was really. It was one of the most genuinely bonkers weeks that I've ever observed in in federal politics. And it was just one of those moments where during Parliament House, the windows don't open. And so when Scott Morrison talks about the bubble, like it literally is like a sort of a big Dutch oven of horror, you know. <laughs> and in weeks like that, it just you just think, open some doors, people. 
you'll all start just, you know, I mean, that whole week was just like, Peter Norton's going to be the Prime Minister, is he? Oh, yeah, blah, blah, blah. And it, it was very odd. Um, but by the end of it, of course, we had this sort of surprise new Prime Minister and, as a result, um, a surprise new Treasurer as well. And um, the funny thing was that when they did their first press conference, and it was sort of like a bit of a... They were an unusual team. Uh, they were unexpected at the beginning of the week. They were Australia's first um, Pentecostal and Jewish <laughs> duo to hold those roles, which is nice. Uh, and they also... They should, they should start a podcast. I mean, they should, actually. That's a hell of a troupe. <laughs> Probably quite an interesting podcast. Yeah, um, but the funny thing was, because we'd just only barely a year before gone through this incredible international upheaval about Jacinda Ardern and what a disaster it would be for this serving world leader to have a baby whilst in office. And I uh, observations written largely by women, yeah, I might say. That's true. Did my head in. Um, and it was just this, it was this extraordinary thing, right? Like, oh my God, look what she's doing. What is she thinking? Nobody's tried this since Benazir Bhutto. Look what happened to her. It's a disaster. <laughs> and, you know, what about that guy? He runs a fishing show. How can he manage a child? Um, so weird. Anyway, I was sort of like, okay. It just uh, served as a reminder of how unusual this was. Like, I was living in the UK when, remember when Tony Blair not sure up and yes. it was just like wow yep <laughs> all right. pregnancy in number 10 okay yeah. yeah and that was like it was basically the the response was just so different because it was mainly all the opinion writers that like the political columnists are all like hey, 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 yeah. still got it still got it still yeah. got a bit of lead in the pencil eh? yes. <laughs> it was just like okay you can stop with that now it's getting gross but like so it wasn't how's this guy gonna manage having a baby it was like what a thrusting Prime Minister he is, etc. It was during that whole kind of, you know, when he was inviting Oasis around at number yes. 10 and stuff. It was very cool. Oh, knock it off. And he yeah. was cool for a yeah. moment. I mean, yeah, come yeah. on. <laughs> anyway, so, um, so it was funny that we'd just gone through this national bout of hand-wringing about how poor old Jacinda Ardern was going to cope with a baby and being Prime Minister. And then we've got these two guys who are, apart from their sort of ecclesiastical significance, were also the only, the first two holders of those big jobs, Prime Minister and Treasurer, to be simultaneously the parents of young children, like primary and younger, since the mid-70s when Fraser made Howard his treasurer and yeah. they both had little kids. So it was quite a moment and I thought, oh, gosh, that's interesting, isn't it? You know, um, both got little kids. And I thought, I'm sure they'll be asked, you know, how are you going to manage <laughs> these big jobs with these little kids? Absolute crickets, absolute crickets. And uh, I was sort of like... <laughs> My the men. And then I thought, why well, don't you've got a phone? <laughs> You're like, well, you. so I question, did. Yes. So I asked them. And um, just because I thought, well, I can't moan about nobody asking them when I could just ask them. So I did. Um, and it's interesting because, like, all of the, I mean, everything that I write about this stuff is totally fueled by the stuff that I've observed about politics and media in the 20 years that I've spent, you mm -hmm. know, involved in both of those workplaces and observing the really different life that mothers live to fathers in both of those um, 
in both of those professional spheres. And um, one thing that I notice when women are asked all the time about if they've got kids, how do you manage it all, which I increasingly think is actually just a perfectly normal and straightforward question to ask. I no longer get enraged when women are asked about that. I just get enraged when the men aren't asked. So, because um, it is a normal human question, just go, oh, you seem to have a lot on, how does that all pan out? Um, anyway, one thing I do notice is when women are asked about this, like women who are kind of juggling work and family, you say to some woman who's, you know, got a big job and a few kids, so how's he, how do you manage it all? And she's always got like a sort of a laminated card in the old purse. She's like, well, well. <laughs> here's how it works. And it's and like, you, and well, you get, you, and you get the complete answer. Like yeah. the complete answer. It's like, yeah. And I love it because I love that kind of detail because, you know, like all, you know, working parents, my mind changes all the time. I'm like, oh, God, it's out of control again. We're rejuggle. How are we going to fix this up? No, you can't do gymnastics. Um, <laughs> or, you know, rowing. Uh, um, and uh, so, but the thing that I noticed about asking these two guys, and they are, you know, Scott Morrison and Josh Frydenberg, I should say, are both re highly engaged fathers, like they're very devoted fathers. They're not the kind of, you know, sorry, what was your name again? On the fifth birthday sort of thing. Not at all. Um, but what struck me was how unused they were to being asked this question. Mm. You know, they didn't have the purse pack. They didn't have the laminated card at all. They were kind of like, well, you know, we try to play in the park at weekends or, you know, try to Skype, you know, or, you know, yes. catch up for dinner or whatever. <laughs> and their entire management technique is based on having these amazing spouses, right? Yeah. Like, which is the story of politics um, in this country where, you know, men breed like rabbits and, um, you know, when occasionally a woman squeezes out a puppy on the national stage, people are like, ooh. How's that going to pan out? That's how it works, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, so yeah, it was good, interesting exercise, an interesting exercise in the differing rules for men and women because, you know, on one hand we have this female prime minister who's having a baby and we think the world's going to end, but on the other hand these two fathers of young children um, get put into these big jobs and nobody even thinks to ask. What was going on clearly with that response and in a sense it sort of formed a, the, the centre, the beginning point, yes, but also the centre of an essay like this, is uh, the idea of a man engaging fully and properly at home and what are the impediments to that? Um, there's not been a tradition of that, fine, we, we know the tradition that we come from um, and the you know, 1950s and 60s type households that we grew up in and no one questioned it then. But feminism is a, is a tide, I believe, that lifts all boats. And um, in that regard, that's one boat that sort of remained, it's you know, bit, stubbornly moored. It is no. a bit moored, yeah. And, I mean, women in the last 50 years have massively changed the way we organise our lives and, I mean, such incredible evolution. When we think about it, it's only 53 years now since if you were a federal public servant um, and a woman, you had to quit your job when you got married, right? Like that was only 53 years ago. And then that was overturned by the Holt government. And then six years later, in comes Whitlam and he says, hey, not only can you stay in the public service, ladies, but you have a baby and you can take a year off unpaid maternity leave and we'll give you 12 weeks paid leave. Like, that was revolutionary, right? Yeah. Imagine how much whiplash those chicks got. Like, what? Oh, okay. Um, 
And so this sort of set a tradition really for women to take about a year off, you know, in maternity leave, then go back to work and maybe work a bit differently. Australia has a really high rate of part-time work, high in comparison to lots of comparable economies, and it's almost all women. Like, so 40% of mothers work part-time, but only 4% of fathers. So that's the split. Um, so working part-time is really unremarkable in Australia, but only if you're female. But as your sole graph in the um, essay... <laughs> I just allow myself one. Just one, with a degree of apology. You know, There, won't, there won't be many graphs in this uh, essay. No. But as your sole graph shows, well, that's uh, the, the, the working life of women, say, over the last, you know, let's even say 20 years, has changed substantially. What is remarkable about this, and I'll let you speak to it, is what hasn't changed at home. Right. So um, my soul graph that's in this essay, um, which is actually, it's a graph composed by Jennifer Baxter, who's this amazing researcher at the Australian Institute for Family Studies. She's just, she does great stuff, and she really pays attention to some neglected areas, including the experience of, of fathers um, in work and family. She's done a few great papers recently. And when I wrote to her, because she gave me heaps of help with the wife drought, um, she was the one that winkled out that stat about how of full-time working fathers in Australia, 76% of them have a spouse who works either part-time or flexibly or not in the paid workforce at all. Yeah. And because what I desperately wanted to know was how many full-time working mothers have the same thing. 15% that's how it works in the other direction. So yeah. that's, the, that's the disparity that drives so much of the workplace behaviour that we see and kind of go, oh, why do women behave like that? Because they're going home to do eight more hours is why. Yes. Um, so, um, this graph, um, I wrote to her and I said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm doing a follow-up a bit to the wife drum, doing this essay, I'm going to do something about men. Um, and she's like, great, okay. She sent me a draft of this paper that she was working on, which she's since presented, and um, it, this graph just jumped out at me. So, what she's done is... Um, She's compiled, she's represented the average experience of men and women in Australia when they have a child. And she plots um, the number of hours a week they do um, for from before birth to birth and then up to the age of 12 of the kid. Um, she plots the hours of domestic work, unpaid domestic work, childcare, and paid work. And if you have a look at the like average women's graph, it goes sort of like this. It's sort of like zero childcare, and then you have the baby, it's like zoop, and then it stays really high for just, you know, it's, it drops back down again after the child's an infant, but then it, it doesn't, doesn't ever go back to zero again, obviously. Um, and paid work goes zoop, and then it's, it sort of like straggles back up. Kind of stutters over along. Yeah, it stutters yeah. along. It, 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 it climbs back up like a sort of mangy goat up a... Um, <laughs> up a sort of modest um, hill slope uh, over the subsequent 12 years, never quite gets back to where she was at the beginning. And then domestic work just goes zoop and then stays there. It doesn't go away. That just stays high. Um, and the man's graph. But the graph. man's graph is just... The woman's graph, like, you look at it and you think, I'm having a heart attack just looking at it. It's just like... It's like an ER red flag. Get all of the handsome doctors from every corner of this ward. Like, it's the tachycardia of home it, it's, life. It's yes. totally, yeah, it's like, 
clear <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, but the men's one is just is lovely. It's, it's just... <laughs> so the childcare one goes up and then it sort of like goes sort of... has a bit of a ski slope. Uh, and the domestic work just goes exactly the same. <laughs> which is about 15 hours a week, yeah. which is, I wrote about in the wife drought, the national secret compact uh, that says that men will do 15 hours a week of domestic work, <laughs> whatever else is going on, which is better than nothing. It's good. Um, and, uh, and if we but, do have a religion in this country, we religiously adhere to that. Yeah, no. <laughs> Let me just remind you, as I'm obliged to do at every point, that these are average... <laughs> Countrywide average figures. So if you're, you know, everybody always is like, but that's not how it works in my house. I'm like, I know, but that's what an average is. It's everybody plus your house. And of course, and it's, <laughs> and it's no one here in this audience. You're no, exactly. All perfect. It's just always the evolved people who show up. Um, anyway, <laughs> so anyway, but the work, like the paid work thing, also. So the man chart is just like lines that just gracefully keep doing what they're just doing. steady as she goes. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a really, it's just, it just jumps out at you because it kind of represents visually what you pretty much thought was going on. And it's very frightening and satisfying at the same time. I'm going to put sense. to one side at this point, and we'll get to it a bit later, yeah. um, and, and this is of great interest to me, so I, I won't not get there, but the, the issue of desire, what, what men actually, right. again, an average of men, or even, you know, very different and contrasting men want to do mm. what their desire is in relation to their working life and their home life. But let's go through um, the impediments, because your essay is, um, is a very structural one. I mean, it's a, it's a portrait and a snapshot of, of where we are in terms of our workplace habits and attitudes and also the changes that are going on. So if we talk about the idea of flexible work policies, which is a, an absolute cliché now, mm. um, and a, a cliché in the very empty sense of that phrase, what do we actually have? How flexible are our workplaces when it comes to um, both women and men, but women, men being able to sort of to carve up their work and um, home responsibilities differently? Look, I think that there are, um, I mean, the proportion of women who work flexibly is quite respectable um, and I think there is an evolution now, um, particularly, as I say, with big professional services firms and large employers that have started to realise that flexible work can um, lead to better productivity and better employee satisfaction mm. and also more economic use of office resources, you know. There's um, a lot of firms discovering that if you've got people working from home and you're doing hot desking, you don't have to like, rent or buy as much office space, for instance. Yeah. Um, but um, according to the ABS, you know, 60% of fathers don't use any kind of flexibility. So Even when it's there? Even when it's there, yeah. Well, I don't know. They don't use any kind of flexibility. Yeah. There is, I think, something complicated going on in lots of employer in in lots of um, uh, workplaces about flexibility, which is that an employer can offer flexible work, like let's say, like Telstra or any of the other big firms that have taken on this sort of like all roles flex idea. And you know, there are um, lots of historic flexibility arrangements that smaller employers just evolve with their employers, employees. But my point is that 
no matter what's written down in the HR manuals or what's sort of available, there is this reluctance to ask for it mm. among men that is not explicable simply by the rules that exist. There is something else. It's like a cultural undertow. It's like a an unwritten rule of which men are aware with respect to their workplaces where they say, yeah, I see the HR manual, but I know that that is not for me. I know that it's not meant for me. And I know that if I, if I do that, people will look at me funny. And I won't be taken seriously and I'll be off, right. I'll, I'll be off the track yeah. if I start to avail myself of that. Yeah. So um, Bain, the consulting firm, did a really interesting um, survey of I think about 1,500 professional um, uh, workers who, from which it emerged that men are about twice as likely to be refused if they ask for flexible work um, than women are. Right. Um, and there's some fascinating research done a couple of years ago, really valuable research by the Diversity Council of Australia, looking at actually millennial fathers, um, which was really revelatory because while they confirm suspicions that the younger generation of fathers want to work differently and feel the expectation too of their partners that they will work differently and that they will be more involved as fathers than perhaps their fathers were. Mm. Um, their aspirations don't match the way that they actually behave. So the one that really stands out to me is um, from that study was that 79% of millennial fathers wanted to work a compressed work week, you know, mm. shove more hours into a few um, days so that they could have time to schedule in, you know, contributing to the, the care of their children. But only 25% of them actually did it. So then you ask uh, your question from earlier, which is like, okay, so why does the aspiration not meet the reality? Is it that these guys are like, oh, yeah, I'd love to do that. I'd love to. Unfortunately, <laughs> I'm, I find myself unable. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. People will try and tell me that that's true, like that no guy wants to be a parent, you know, in the hands-on sense, so, you know, that's what happens. But um, to what extent do the subterranean expectations of the workplace mm. feed into that? And I, I actually, I don't know what the split is. I don't. But I think that... If there are restrictions, as I think it's pretty clear there are, in workplaces and habitual differences in the way women and men are treated in this respect, then it doesn't matter really how big the slice is of men who would like genuinely to work one way and don't because they, are, they entertain reasonable um, apprehension about how they'll be treated, yeah. then that is a giant bulldog clip on freedom of choice, isn't it? There's a great example we'll get to later that you have in the book, particularly at Medibank, where, um, and, and clearly when it's uh, made explicit and when a different way of working or a different expectation on you or allowance for you is 
it comes from the very top down, mm -hmm. clearly the culture can change. But before we get to that, there was a great story in the essay that really stayed with me, and it was at the superannuation <laughs> dinner <laughs> that you spoke at, and um, there you were at the rubber chicken afterwards, sort of thinking, oh, who have they sat me next to? <laughs> and um, they've sat you next to this, um, the, the, the irreplaceable guy. Who's the irreplaceable guy? So I was doing a little, you know, 20-minute post-dinner rant to a group of um, superannuation executives. So just who was more horrified? I, I don't know. Like, <laughs> who was more thinking this could be a tedious night? Just Me a, or them? I don't know. <laughs> brief interruption. When these things normally happen, there's usually some um, sort of uh, emancipated person somewhere in the organisation who thinks, wouldn't it be great to get Annabelle Crabble on? <laughs> And, and, and invariably the, the, the woman next to her goes, oh, I love her. That would be great. And thus you end up and with a And the guys sea. are all like, going, awesome. What? Yeah. <laughs> Annabelle Crabbe addressing a sea of uh, executives at the, internet, oh, no. the National Superannuation Dinner. Look, so. I made it fun. It was great. Of course she it did. It really was. And uh, we had a lovely talk. And... Um, <laughs> And, but afterwards, it was so interesting. I, got, I fell into conversation with this guy who was probably like mid-30s, yeah. he was younger than me, and he was saying, oh, you know, just really loved your talk and I would, you know, I would do anything to be able to, you know, spend more time with my kids and my wife is actually about to have our second child and I would love to take parental leave. And I said, oh, yes. And he said, well, it's, unfortunately, though, I'm not replaceable in my job. <laughs> and I thought, oh, Bless your cotton socks. Like, he was just sort of like, he was a bit like, well, I'm very significant in my, like, I, I'm responsible for a lot of things, and so I can't really be replaced. And, um, and I said, oh, what, and what would happen if you were female and having a baby? And he just sort of like, I don't know, there, nothing was said. He just looked really... <laughs> A he would have blinked. Puzzled. He yeah, would have blinked it was a bit of blinking. Rapidly, I imagine. And I thought, isn't that interesting? Yeah. Because you know that question of how do I? I mean, it is a real question, right? Like, I'm not saying that blokes are useless or lazy. Whatever. Like, it's a really, it's a hard, it's a really hard question. How do I? Particularly with people having children later now, they've got careers, you've got really good at something. It is a big thing. Like, how am I going to stop doing this for a bit and, or do something differently or make room for it all when I also want to be really good at this other thing that I'm doing, which is being a parent, yeah. which is, by the way, a hundred times more confusing and frightening than a job. Um, and when everybody. The job is always way easier right, than a parent. Of course. <laughs> and when people have children, like, nobody knows how to do anything. Like, this whole thing about, like, women. No, they just know. No, they don't. They, they just don't. Um, not unless you've raised sort of 16 younger siblings or something. Um, it's just, no, everybody's an idiot at it. And the only way to do it is to learn, right? And if the way things work in this country is like we have a really deep-seated expectation about who will be doing that. I'm not talking about just breastfeeding. Obviously, one party in a heterosexual relationship will have the boobs, right? Um, and... Whoever, like even if it's um, a same-sex relationship, you know, if it's women, one person will be having the baby and then you sort things out from there. But if you assume that the person who's doing the birthing will also be doing the whole, like, first year of that kid's life or even post-breastfeeding, then that has a very particular effect, which means that that person then becomes super expert, particularly if the other person just goes straight back to work and... Um, isn't around for all yeah. that stuff. So, you know, I would never argue that, you know, um, 
a birth mother's experience is exactly the same as their partner's. Um, but there's all sorts of evidence that shows that like the earlier um, the non-birth parent is involved in that kid's life, the more the deeper the connection is mm. later on, and the more even the division of domestic labour mm. is um, down the track, which has a lot of knock-on effects for um, participation in employment. Um, so it's it's really quite significant stuff. This, and I think that in Australia we have this sort of habitual way of approaching it. I mean, it's even it's pretty clearly spelled out in the way our um, national paid parental leave scheme yes. works, right? Yeah. Like, so that was legislated, came into effect about nine years ago. And in that time, 1.2 million women have um, participated in that scheme. And that scheme has done awesome things for low-paid women who didn't have employers that offered parental leave. Like, yeah. that has given those women an amazing... Um, ability to cope with the arrival of a child when they don't have significant resources. But also the way that that scheme is structured is it can be applied for by the birth mother and then transferred to a partner, um, which you think, oh, okay, so that maybe the dad can have a portion of that leave or whatever. But in the time that 1.2 million women have have taken leave under that scheme, 6,250 men have. Less than one half of 1% mm -hmm. of the number of women. Mm -hmm. And the way that that scheme is structured is there's 18 weeks for the primary parent, primary carer, and there's two weeks that's called dad and partner pay, just in case you were in any doubt who the primary carer definitely shouldn't be. Yeah, and, and, and you, you in the essay, and it's, it's really interesting and actually I hope potentially takes us to a, a much better conversation and understanding about this in the, in the national debate. You talk about what happens if you take away the terms, you know, primary carer right. and, you know, mother, father, yeah. away from this whole idea of, of simply being um, a participant in your own family yeah. and in your own life. <laughs> yeah, the, the primary carer term is really interesting because, like, Jenny Macklin, who, you know, amazingly got that um, paid parental leave legislation through the parliament at the time of the global financial crisis. I mean, she's, she really is a witch, that lady. Um, <laughs> but um, seriously, the most significant person in that government who was never in the papers. Anyway, um, so she said, well, look, you know, we, we use the term primary carer because, you know, to cater for same-sex parents. Um, but over the years, and lots of the corporate schemes in the private sector where I've got to say the participation rate by men is better. It's like one in 20. So it's better than the public scheme. Um, but what's happened over the years is that primary carer has become like a shorthand for birth mother. Like that's how yeah. it works. And in America, which is the last um, first world nation not to have a parental leave public scheme of any kind, like Australia was the second to last, and America's the last, still doesn't have one, although I'm sure that will change under Donald Trump, right? Am I right? <laughs> um, and Australia's also one of the lowest paid in the OECD, but anyway, more of that later. So um, in America, private employers use um, parental leave as an incentive for hiring, like they use healthcare and whatever. Mm. 
Um, but there's been this really interesting um, pattern in the last few years of litigation by fathers against their private sector employers because they've applied for parental leave, which isn't gendered, but being told that they can't have it because they're men. Right. And so, for instance, J.P. Morgan Chase, the bank, um, had to settle a case just a couple of months ago of this dad who had applied for parental leave and been told that unless he could demonstrate that his wife was physically handicapped in some way, that he, it wasn't available to him. He's just like, well, hang on a minute, look at the policy. What are you talking about? And he just said, no, nah, I'm suing. And they settled it because they were obviously in the wrong. Um, and then they had to set up this little fund to compensate other fathers who'd been knocked back um, as well. Anyway, and there's a couple, been a few others as well. CNN, um, they're all settling these cases because, you know, um, they don't really have a legal leg to stand on. But And so I thought, oh, how interesting. I wonder if there's dads who have um, taken legal action against their employers here in Australia. Hmm. Did a bit of, you know journalist research, like I using a laptop, not just my phone. Uh, Professional. I, I got that from the two peas in a podcast, podcast, <laughs> which is a very funny line. So thanks, Mandy and Kate. Um, listen to that podcast, by the way, it's great. Um, anyway, so uh, I read that I couldn't find any cases. I'm like, oh, this is a bit rum. Surely there must be some angry dads somewhere in Australia. And I rang... Uh, Kate Jenkins, the yes. Sex Discrimination Commissioner, I said, hi, Kate, how are you? Um, so I was just looking for some cases, like, are there any, is there any litigation you're aware of? And she said, oh, no, there wouldn't be. I'm like, oh, <laughs> why not? And she said, because she said, oh, because of Section 31 of the Sex Discrimination Act. I'm like, oh, yeah, what does that say? Feeling a bit embarrassed that I didn't know. And she said, oh, well, Section 31 of the Sex Discrimination Act, um, makes it legal for employers to discriminate against men in the area of pregnancy and childbirth. And I looked at it, like, I mean, I believed it, but I also went and looked at it, and it's, it says that. Nothing in this Sex Discrimination Act makes it illegal for an employer to discriminate in favour of women in the area of pregnancy and childbirth. Now, that legislation was um, hammered into place by the great Susan Ryan in 1984, mm. um, and... The context for that legislation was that all these women were like flooding into workplaces and sexual harassment, discrimination around pregnancy, like it was just, you know, that legislation was needed to correct discrimination against women. But I think we've got this really weird situation now where it, it, it's also in a contemporary context. Unintended consequences. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, is Section 31 what's stopping men from taking up parental leave? No, probably not. But it also... Um, it's sort of part of this environment where we don't really expect men to change the way that they work when they um, when their lives change, yeah. which is bonkers because, like, changing the way that you work when a whole new bunch of stuff arrives in your life is kind of a rational thing to do. One of those lo logical things you can probably do. Yeah. Um, everyone in this room will be well familiar, either from themselves or experience at work or experience of others, of that culture that clearly um, ain't that 
thrilled with mm. the idea of you, you know, working flexibly or putting a higher priority on home or, mm. you know, not being on the partner path or indicating that you might not be. So we don't need to spend too much time on that here. But what isn't really intriguing in your essay is where you go to the places where they have most deliberately tried to flip that and turn yeah. it on its head. And places unexpectedly, like Medibank, yeah. and doing that after privatisation. Yeah, it's interesting. I've um, been sort of snooping around ever since... I did the wife drought. I've been looking around just to look, just check on firms that have started to change the way they operate. And look, there's been a real knock-on effect. I think um, ever since Liz Broderick started the sort of male champions of change thing, you've yeah. got this culture where there's all, all these like bloke CEOs who have now made it into a pissing contest to kind of you know improve their gender equity and stuff. And that has also coincided with just a whole shitload of research that shows that. Gender equity in the workplace isn't just a sort of like a lovely equity issue. It's also just very, very good business sense. And mm. there's just a lot more resources now being poured into research to look at what the business case advantages of, of having a diverse group of people making decisions is, right? So that's all sort of rolling along. Um, and I have had a lot of conversations writing this essay with um, Medibank because they did something really weird and unusual and revolutionary about 18 months ago, not long ago at all. They had been fiddling around for a while with their parental leave policy offering in the firm, in the company, um, because they were, they were just they were losing a lot of people after one year and a lot of people who were out for two, like 75% just never came back. And mm. it's a bad, you know, you train people and then if they bad don't come back, yeah. then it's a loss. So they're working out how, you know, so they were talking to a lot of people in the firm and trying to work out how they'd fiddle around it. You know, would they start paying superannuation on the unpaid parts of the paid parental leave and so on? And they're... Um, take up of men of their sort of long pay parental leave was about 2% at this time. And then they started just tossing around some quite crazy ideas and one of them was, why don't we just do away with this primary carer idea? We'll just make it, if you're a parent, if you become a parent through, you know, because you've actually had the baby through your bits or you've helped conceive it or you've or, or you're adopted it. foster parent. Or fostering yep. or surrogate, you know, yep. or whatever. If you have a child that's come into your life, then you can have paid parental leave. It's like 14 weeks. You can take it. And this is like the thing that's made the difference for men, I think. You can take it. Um, by the way, if there's two of you working for the company, you can both have it at the same time if you want. <gasps> Which is a real shibboleth. What if they want to take it at the same time? Mm -hmm. Which is funny because you don't think about that of, about that with annual leave. What if she wants to take it at the same time as her husband so that they can go on a lovely mini break? <laughs> Why? Why would you care? Anyway. So oh, they, must, they must be irreplaceable. I don't I imagine. <laughs> so funny. Anyway. Um, and so that's what they did. And it was a bit sort of red hot because they didn't, you know, do a business model or cost it out. They just went here's something yeah. that we're going to do and we just think it will make life simpler for people. They'll be less worried. Everybody will know that it's okay for them to take it. And indeed, they had men that started taking it. And in fact, in the year and a half that it's been in operation, the participation of men in parental leave has gone from that 2 or 3% to 30%. Like, 
right? It's just, and all it's been is just like, yes, this is for you. No, you won't die if you take it. It's fine. But also, and, but, but also the organisation had leadership that, that yep. spoke about it and showed it. Yeah. And made, made it very, very clear that nothing bad was going to happen right. to you if you took your yep. leave. And it and had to be made explicit because um, a lot of, you know, men's expectations about themselves and work were pretty rock hard set. Yep, that's right. And they'd also, and this is really important at that, because they got privatised in, it was 2014, they moved buildings and... When they moved buildings, the, um, the management made a decision to change the way that they would um, communicate their expectations of the way people would work. So they, they moved to a flexible work system. And it was easier to do when they moved buildings because, you know, they've worked out that one of the things that really stops people from feeling okay about working flexibly is they all sit in the same place every day <laughs> and it's the same set of eyeballs going, oh, hello. She's leaving at 3.15. She's leaving at 3.15 again. Yeah. Mm. That's when you, you know about the cardigan, the cardigan, the cardigan the over the, the back, back of, the chair, of your, yeah. your, your chair. Looks like you're still there. Yeah. Never, fool, never fools anyone, but we all leave the cardigan there anyway because it <laughs> kind of makes you feel a bit better. <laughs> so once everybody's sort of moving around, then right. it takes away that the pressure. forest of eyeballs uh. phenomenon. Um, and they also did a huge amount of work with all different levels of the organisation saying, okay, this is how flexible work works. It doesn't mean that the person's not working. What we're moving to is a system of outcomes-based, mm -hmm. you know, you do the work, here are your performance goals and here's the amount of work you have to do. We don't care don't how care you when get you there. Do it. Yeah. Yeah. And that really opens things up for people who are multitasking lots of um, different jobs and responsibilities. So that, you know, and um, Medibank told me that actually getting to the point of the flexible work being accepted was actually much harder than embedding this, the parental leave stuff. Right. Um, but the addition of flexibility in the way that you can take up the parental leave, so their package is like you can take it all at once or you can knock it into two chunks or you can just like work three days a week until it's mm. exhausted and that has been the thing that they reckon has got men over the line and, and, and participating. Um, I also talked to PwC which has done a lot of work mm. on this and they um, have actually um, incorporated flexible work really powerfully into their offering and they use it as you know an incentive they make themselves an employer of choice by offering this flexibility. There's not, you know, they've been really careful to say it's not just for parents, it's for, yeah. you know, people who have got other things going on in their lives, whether that is, you know, caring for a relative or whether it's, you know, you happen to be a kind of, you know, an incredibly competitive luge artist or, or whatever, you know. Like, and so it's making room in your work life to work around other things that you want to achieve. And anyway, I was talking to them, I was saying, oh, right, okay. And um, and they measure for everything. They've got some sort of infernal, internal Yammer system where they ask everybody all the time, how are you feeling, how are you feeling, all right, all right, which seems to be the constant, the, the current sort of vogue in HR departments in big companies are like, how's Eng everybody? Engagement. Your engagement. And they measure engagement and they, you know, how are you feeling, how are you feeling? Would you recommend this workplace to somebody else? <laughs> Do you think you'll be here in two years? I mean... They're sounding I'm a, very I'm a needy, journalist, but no one ever asks you anything. Yes, They're just yeah. like, you're still alive. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good talk. Yeah. Never been on an away day. Let's keep it that way. Uh, anyway, um, 
So I was talking to this woman, Kylie Bishop, who runs the, um, uh, who, who's the diversity person um, at PwC, and I, um, she said, oh, you know, well, we, you know, we're largely a, a millennial workplace. Mm -hmm. I said, oh, really? What's the average age of, you know, they've got 10,000, I don't know, many thousands of employees in Australia. She said, oh, 27. <gasps> <laughs> I know, I'm like, wow. <laughs> right. Okay. So, so that's sort of this evolution of the workplace that I think is happening. And, you know, it is, I think, led by big employers and people often will say, oh, you know, what can the government do? And the government can do things, but honestly, it's workplace culture that, that yeah. drives this stuff. It really is. That and seeing what other people do. Was it, was it Medibank or PwC, I'm sorry I didn't note this down, um, that uh, someone senior in the ranks used the phrase about, we want people who bring their whole selves yeah. to work. Yeah, yeah. All, all of their, every part of their lives yeah. has to come to work. That was And, and, and we should be aware yeah. of it. Medibank, right. And I think that, I don't know, I, I'm really encouraged by employers that think really carefully about that stuff because it is actually opening up the idea of what a great employee is. Because yeah. historically, the juice in the machine of this particular um, paradigm, this stereotype that women struggle against, which is that the ideal employee is a person who can drop anything at any time and just come and be on deck or, you know, um, pull an all-nighter or come in for the breakfast meeting or stick around getting massively pissed with the partners late into the night or whatever, you know. It's it's really hard to be that employee who's got a whole lot of other stuff that you are responsible for in the rest of your life, right? Mm. And, and so this increasingly outdated idea of the ideal employee is really teased apart a bit and relaxed and... Um, and opened up by a culture of flexible work, yeah. which says, okay, you're here because of the work that you can do and we'll afford you some flexibility um, in the way that you do it. And the funny thing is, I mean, I wrote a bit about this in the Wife Drought, there's this absolutely terrifying study that IBM did a few years back where they looked at, they, they found the break point of employees, which is literally the point at which like how many hours a week can be thrown onto you before you actually lose it and start gibbering and like drinking rum in the afternoons like that. And they worked out that it was like you know, 62 hours or whatever, like, but they worked out that if they allowed um, employees to set their own start and finish times or to work from home when they needed to, that break point actually extended. Like <laughs> people were able to incorporate more hours of work because they felt more in control they're doing of the it on circumstances. Their terms. Yeah. So, and like I sort of, it's kind of a great study but also a bit scary. <laughs> but I think, you know, um, of the way that I've changed my working patterns yeah. since I've had kids, like I do heaps more stuff at home, like I, um, but I'll work later at night too. So yeah, it's you, just, you, yeah. You quote um, someone's email um, footer, which is great, which said, I, I, I work flexibly, so I'm sending this email at a time that suits me, but I don't expect you to read it or respond to it or action it until you're working, you know, in the hours that so work woke. for you. <laughs> it's so work. But Nicola Roxon used to do <laughs> that when nice. she was health yeah. minister and, you know, Nicola Roxon in 2007 mm. became the first woman to serve in an Australian cabinet whilst raising a preschool-aged child, yeah. right? And she 
put in all sorts of rules about, you know, um, chunks of the day that were reserved for um, her family, but mm. then she would compensate by working crazy hours into the night as well. Yep. But she would always say to her staff, look, hey, just because I'm setting this at like 2 a.m. doesn't mean I expect you to be there receiving. She clearly wasn't Kevin Rudd, of course. <laughs> I know. So, but... She was, just, she was up late responding to Kevin. To those things. <laughs> very different. Uh, we are right on uh, the time knock here, and as you know, I keep things to time. I know. Just so taking we... it through to the top of the hour. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And we start to talk like this as we get to the top of the hour as well. It's 12 o'clock. Um, so get in touch with I've, us I've on Twitter, this, Facebook, I've, Instagram. I've uh, saved this for last. Um, yeah, and you've got to answer real fast. <laughs> um, what about the blokes who actually just don't want to do more at home? Well, I guess they have their own gods to answer to, you know? Like, I mean, I mean, you can't set a rule of behaviour for everybody. Like, I don't really care either. I mean, like, you know... Everybody else's relationship is a mystery, right? Isn't that right? Yep. Okay. Even your and own so, sometimes. And, well, yeah, sure. Um, and I never, like, I don't think this is an exercise in social engineering or, you know, getting people, forcing people to behave in a certain way. The thing that cuts me up is thinking that there are people who don't feel like they can do what they want to yeah. do because um, people will sort of think less of them. That's really tragic. And, I mean... I, I can only speak with any sort of authenticity about my own experience, which is that, you know, I've got three kids. I started having kids when I was 35, already had a career, and I have um, changed the way that I've worked again and again to allow me to enjoy productive time with my children, and that's been awesome. Like, it's been... I have cried a lot, but it's been sort of great. And also, I've found myself... I do different work from the work that I would have done yeah. if I didn't have the kids, and that's not a loss. It's been, like, a really great process, and I'm sort of genuinely sorry that lots of men miss out on that. It's, it's very true. I'm put in mind of um, a, a rare moment of compassion by Ms. <laughs> Jermaine Greer, uh, who, who many, many years ago, many years ago, lamented what she called um, the, uh, the lives of unfree men. Yeah. She was wondering out loud why women who were heading down the line of um, equality feminism rather than liberation feminism. Why would we want to go on and live the lives of unfree men? So quarterly essay 75 hopes to unshackle men from those social expectations. Please thank Annabelle Crabb. Nicely rounded off. <laughs> thank you.